Hello, I'm Connor Pope and this is In the News from the Irish Times, where we take a close look at the stories that matter. Today, how worried should we be about the spread of COVID in children? The success of the vaccine rollout in Ireland has exceeded even the most optimistic projections of earlier this year. The HSC has said the take-up rate is beyond their expectations. Today, It has allowed the country to reopen and life to at least start returning to normal. A pilot music festival in Dublin tonight. More than 3,500 people have been allowed into the grounds of the Royal Hospital. Booster shots are being planned for vulnerable older people and there is talk of scaling back the nationwide testing and tracing programme as the country prepares to live with COVID. We would see an easing of restrictions on organised indoor and outdoor events and mass gatherings. Virtually all restrictions will be lifted within weeks. But for more than half a million children in primary schools and creches around the country, there is no vaccine. And fears have been expressed that they are now the most at risk from the virus. Paul Cullen is the Irish Times health editor. There's been a lot of commentary in recent days about school children being more vulnerable to contracting COVID now than at any point in the pandemic. Paul, what's your take on that? You know, we look back now after 18 months of experience and we can see that we have opened schools successfully before. We know from the very start of this pandemic that children thankfully have been spared the worst effects of COVID. That situation hasn't really changed with new variants as they've come along, including the Delta variant. And I do think also that in terms of Ireland's particular response, I think it's uh, better than it was, obviously, uh, last year. And I think our crystal ball gazing, our our modelling is better. So I'm more inclined to trust what our officials are telling us this autumn. And I think it's important to remember There's this great Latin word from the courts called qua. I don't know if you know. So children qua children, children as children don't transmit the virus as much as adults and they're not as at risk as adults, particularly younger children. We tend to have carried up this debate as uh, talking about children qua school children. But actually, just because a, a school child has a case of COVID, it's less likely that they acquire that case in school. It's more likely that they acquired it in the community, in the family. They were twice as more likely to acquire it in the family than in the school. So you've got to separate those two things out. In many cases in the last year, children have been safer within schools actually than in the community when there was very high levels of transmission. We do have very high case levels. They have been stable and even declining in the last while. And against that, we have this great wall of um, immunity created by the very high level of vaccination in the community, extending down to 12-year-olds. Of course, we're, we're heading into an Irish winter. Of course, there may be other bugs such as flu and, and other respiratory viruses, which will completely muddy the, the picture. And of course, we have this, this big testing regime, which means that you have to stay at home for 10 days if you're suspected to have a case, even if your, your symptoms are very minor. So there is a lot of uncertainty there. But if you think about it, when we reopened the schools last March, in the three months after that, about 1% of kids got COVID. It's hard to see, even with the new variant and even from a higher level, it's hard to see things being so drastically worse as to force school closures. We've been living with COVID now for 18 months, so we have a huge bank of data both in this country and internationally. What are the numbers telling us about children and their likelihood of getting very sick from COVID? Or what do we know about their likelihood of getting long COVID? 
Apart from the earliest weeks of the pandemic, when if you remember back then, there was a lot of fear about children being vectors for transmission of disease. And actually then things flipped over and it turned out that we adults were the vectors of the disease in ways that we didn't understand. It's been apparent then since almost the start of the pandemic that children were less affected and they really are affected very, very little. That's not to minimise the cases that do occur but I suppose the most complete research comes from Britain and they would, uh, you know, would say to take one calculation, you have to distinguish between the number of infections among children and the number of cases, because the number of cases depends on the amount of, of testing you do. But so many illnesses among children will be so minor that they won't even peak above the, the water level. You wouldn't notice them. But there would be a one in 750 risk of hospitalization and the risk of death is over one in 100,000 or 120,000. And I think the figures here are, are pretty similar. Of those children who do have serious illnesses, a majority would have had underlying conditions. And what about the long COVID fears? Yeah, I mean, obviously, there's a lot of discussion about long COVID and there's, there's still swirling uncertainty around long COVID. Uh, I find it very frustrating. I mean, I, I still don't think we have a clear definition of what people mean by that because of the variety of different symptoms. If you take a, a rough uh, level of, say, do you still have symptoms three months after infection? So I have seen figures quoted by people who are very concerned about, you know, saying, you could have anywhere more, you could have more than 10% of children who'd still have symptoms three or four months after infection. However, the largest study that I have reported on, again from the UK, would have said that under 2% of children were displaying symptoms two months after in, infection. So uh, the proportion is quite low, but obviously if you have a lot of cases among children, then you will have proportionately more cases of long COVID. Then you're into the uncertainty about what that actually means. How long does that will that last? How serious are the conditions? And is there a risk of misdiagnosis of other conditions that arise as children grow up and become adults? In recent days, we've heard some reports that almost every single unvaccinated child in Ireland might have COVID by the time the springtime rolls around. What do you make of those reports? Is that likely? I don't think it's likely, but I don't have any guarantees on, on what will happen. As I quoted earlier, 1% of our children got infected in the 12 weeks after schools reopened last March. So if you take into account that we now have the Delta variant, which is more than 50% more transmissible than the, the variant that was around then. Uh, it's hard to see how you would get from 1% up to 80%, even allowing for the vagaries or the influence of winter. Uh, while that is possible, I, I feel that it's on the high side. You have to remember that back then, you know, children were were going home into households where there was an uh, increased circulation of the virus because of, it was spreading in the community and there was no protection from vaccination. Now children are going home to parents who are by and large mostly vaccinated. They're even going home to siblings who, if they're in second level, are vaccinated. So, you know, there's a lot more protection, more uh, to, to, to prevent that kind of event happening. There's no great evidence that there are large numbers of super spreading events in classrooms in any case. One of the key differences that's going to emerge in the days ahead between primary schools and secondary schools is that, you know, the vast majority of secondary school children will be vaccinated and secondary school children will still have to wear masks. But primary school children don't have to wear masks and they won't be vaccinated. Surely that places them at particular risk of spreading it amongst themselves. 
If you look at practice in other countries, the 12-year-old threshold for wearing masks that's applied here in Ireland, and which has been criticised by some, is reasonably typical for Europe. There are some parts of the US where children as young as two are wearing masks and other countries then where masks have been dispensed with. And whatever about what has happened up to now, I mean, the context that we're in at the moment, whether people are ready for it or not psychologically, we are moving to a normalisation phase or an end of the pandemic phase. And that is justified by the levels of immunisation in the population and and the trends that we're seeing in the broader context. So if we're going to be start removing masks for adults into other situations and if we're going to send people back to work and so on, it would seem to be an outlier to be forcing children to wear, continue to wear masks or even to add to the number of school children who are wearing masks. Personally, I think the disadvantages, and I'm speaking as a parent here, the disadvantages to wear mask wearing have not been adequately calculated. The impact that has on children's psyche and and, and well-being is profound and fundamental in my opinion, and this is just my opinion. And I think that needs to counterbalance any consideration. Tell me this, is there any prospect of younger kids, kids under the age of 12, being vaccinated? I I, I can't see it happening this winter. You You can see that in Ireland we have taken an enthusiastic approach to vaccinating let's say, more marginal groups. I I don't think the case for the risk benefit case for vaccinating younger children is is well established. Advising vaccination for children, now like other agencies right across um, Europe and the world have to consider the relative risks and benefits for children for whom COVID-19 presents a very low risk in terms of serious illness, hospitalisation, ITU and death. And that to balance what is a very low risk against the risks that any vaccine may have in younger age groups uh, between uh, the, the, joint, the joint. So you can see the more cautious approach that's been taken in the UK, where after some hand wringing, they've decided to give 12 to 15 year olds one dose of vaccine instead of two. Obviously, the regulatory process on either side of the Atlantic will progress and has begun so that in the US, for example, the Pfizer vaccine now has full authorization as opposed to emergency use authorization. So once that goes through the system for adults uh, in Europe, then they can start thinking about, you know, giving full authorization for younger groups and then possibly contemplating that or, or working out how perhaps to give lower doses to children. But I think the British approach of caution is, is, is a sensible one. So we're a long way off that, but we do appear to be much closer to giving older people and more vulnerable groups booster shots. Is that happening soon? Yeah, I mean, it, it will happen soon. Uh, the authorization has come through the, the systems here for people who are in nursing homes and over 80s in the community. There's an interesting debate swirling around here. So first, the first thing is, how well are our existing vaccines working? And the answer to that is they're really working very, very well. The Delta variant has bashed their protection against infection to some extent. But their protection, the protection that the main vaccines, and that's all four vaccines, give against serious illness and hospitalization is massive. It's, you know, 80, 90 percent. It still is. So that's the thing that people have to remember. They have, you know, they may succumb to an infection. And I, you, anecdotally, you will come across people who, who are saying this, that they were infected and they, uh, after getting vaccinated. But it was a mild infection, a short lived one short-lived one. And isn't that what vaccines were for, to stop you falling seriously ill? So they're working. So the question is, if they're working, then do we need a booster? The WHO doesn't think we need a booster. We're planning to hand out uh, extra life jackets to people who already have life jackets, while we're leaving other people to drown without 
a single life jacket. That's the reality. Now, they they are conscious of the need to get vaccines out to the rest of the world because there is a scientific consensus. I think that's shared. We may disagree about lots of things, but I think everyone realizes that we need to get everyone vaccinated or as many people in the world as possible in order to put a lid on this. And uh, the question is, do you give third shots to people in Ireland and other Western countries or do you use those limited supplies as first shots and second shots in other countries where supply is, is, is lacking? And there was, as you know, in the last few days, uh, a new report uh, by an international panel of experts who, saying that there isn't any justification at this stage for giving booster shots to, to the general population. So from your perspective, do you think it's ethical that we give people booster shots when there's people without those life jackets across the developing world? Uh, probably not. If the supplies are in the country already, there's no justification for not using them here. They wouldn't, probably the expiry date wouldn't apply. If you're talking about future supplies, it's a balancing act. If Ireland is fully subscribed to its commitments to supplying vaccines around the world, you know, our ministers can probably argue that we're doing our bit. You know, there are other ways to to skin the cat, you know, by increasing out, output. But I think most experts are saying now that it will, wouldn't even be next year, but by the time this job is finished, it's like painting the Golden Gate Bridge. It'll probably go into the 2023, is it, uh, before everybody is going to get access to, to vaccines. By which stage, of course, the worry is that um, the virus could have mutated further and, and pose a new threat, in which case we're back to the start. Coming up, what will a more normal COVID testing system look like? Jack Horgan-Jones, you're a political reporter with the Irish Times and you've been writing this week about a Neffet paper which envisages a dramatic change to the COVID-19 testing regime. That change would lead to a more normal testing system. Given that we're still dealing with over 1,300 cases a day, why would such a change even be considered? So this would be a, a fairly radical departure, both in terms of potentially scaling down the huge amount of testing that we do at the moment, upwards of 25,000 tests every day, but also in terms of how we've experienced the, the pandemic so far. The entire COVID story in Ireland has been shot through with the issue of testing. Initially, we had arguments over testing capacity. People are very concerned about this government's handling of COVID-19 and especially testing and tracing. Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael Will we be able to do enough to track the progress of the disease and to interrupt chains of transmission? Could we do it fast enough? What was the turnaround time? Did we have enough equipment? Were the labs scaled up enough? Did we have enough reagent? I mean, all these stories punctuated certainly the first six months of the pandemic last year. Since then, it's become part of the background noise around the whole pandemic in Ireland to the extent that, you know, when you drill down into it, what's the the main way in which people have experienced the pandemic on a daily basis? Good evening, ladies and gentlemen. Thank you again for being with us. Has been um, those case numbers and they, of course, are a function of the testing system itself. An additional 548 new cases of COVID-19. It's been one of the key metrics, one of the key ways people have encountered and thought about COVID. And that's why... The idea that we'd step back from that and do so voluntarily, not out of necessity, I think is, is an interesting and intriguing story. Why we would do it is two reasons, really. Initially, it's because it looks like the disease is going to become endemic, not just to the Irish population, but to the world population. And any attempt to, to stamp it out locally would not withstand uh, the, the strong 
probability of reintroduction of COVID through travel. So that means that we have to tolerate some level of infection or at least the risk of some level of infection associated with COVID as a kind of standing risk. The second issue is the protection offered by vaccines, which means obviously that the link between infection and serious outcomes, hospitalization, ICU admission or death has been significantly weakened, not broken. And we don't know exactly the parameters of how it's been weakened yet because of the confounding effect of the Delta variant, but it's clear that it has been significantly weakened. That means that the impact on our health service, which was the reason that we went into lockdown those three times in the first place, the impact on our health service becomes easier to map, easier to model, easier to understand and, and, and easier to tolerate. And it also means that the virus will circulate most extensively within unvaccinated populations and the largest population. In fact, really the only remaining substantially unvaccinated population within the state and ultimately probably within the world will be children. Children obviously have significantly better outcomes uh, associated with, with COVID infection. So that further kind of hammers home the sense that, you know, severe clinical outcomes have been diminished. In fact, the paper even makes the point that if we accept that COVID is going to become endemic, that the risk of infection is something that we're going to have to tolerate for many years to come, that early infection without a serious medical outcome and perhaps repeated infection amongst children may be no bad thing in the round in terms of giving some acquired immunity through life. So that's how the picture is changing. Can you tell me what would change if the proposals as they are outlined were introduced? So the the most visible change, I suppose, would, would just be lower levels of testing and the substantial dismantling, ultimately, I suppose, of, of that kind of mass, basically open access, self-referral for testing system that we have. And what's interesting is that as a corollary of that, the relevance of case numbers as a proxy for infection in society will be reduced. So you may and you probably would see a debate about how worthwhile it would be to to keep having daily case totals published if we've changed the way we're measuring and changed the way we're looking for this disease. And the paper outlines effectively seven steps, which are, are quite detailed and involved. But in, in the round, you'll be looking towards moving away from testing in the first instance, vaccinated and asymptomatic people, but ultimately ending up in a place where you'd accept a, a degree of people being symptomatic and unvaccinated even. And basically that, that mild symptoms wouldn't necessarily mean that you'd be referred for tests at all. Are the changes likely to come about? And if so, when do you think they'd be implemented? I suppose, as with all things COVID related, this is path dependent. Uh, it depends on, on how the disease performs. It depends on how much pressure the healthcare system is under. And it depends on how the, the disease changes as well. So who knows, we could get some extremely nasty variant of concern that doesn't work with the vaccines and sets us back. And in five or six months, we'll be looking back at this conversation and saying, God, how naive are we to think that we'll be doing away with testing when it's all the more important than ever. All things being equal, though, I do think this will be the, the, the direction of travel. And I do think that we will we will move away from it, but in a stepwise way. And I think that one of the first ways that we'll see this becoming real is in the schools. The schools is kind of the thin end of the wedge on this. Uh, and it's also the most pressing part of the problem. We've had this debate because we've seen thousands of children 
being taken out of class as a result of being close contacts. And the question that's currently being asked is, why would we remove close contacts in school when they likely won't get sick? They likely won't transmit the Delta variant even at a very high level and, and they might not even contract COVID at all. So why would we remove them from school when we know that it's definitely going to have a really bad impact on their education and on their parents' work lives and so on? So NEFET this coming Thursday, that policy remained unchanged. Surprised if there wasn't some change arising from NEFET. Uh, and I would be surprised if in a week or 10 days time, we're quite a ways away, I would estimate months, from moving totally to the system that's outlined in the paper that went to NEFET this summer. But it certainly is a bellwether for how we're going to experience COVID in the future if it remains more or less in the current state that it's in. That's it for today. In the news, we'll be back soon.